Hey, good morning, everybody. Over the years, I have gotten fairly good at some of the first-person uh, first shooter video games. Uh, by the way, that is a statement that causes my sons to chuckle because uh, they remember when I used to be very bad at those kind of games. The turning point for me when I began to be better at them came when there was a teenager who was playing at our house and he chose to be brutally honest with me, completely frustrated at my utter incompetence. He finally looked up at one point and said, are you trying to die? And I assured him that not only was I not trying to die, I was trying very hard to get good at this game so I could blow his little head off. And, um, and he took that in stride and, and he said this, he said, okay, then Mr. Broderick, you've got to get low, crouch down, push down on the left stick, slide down when you enter a room. He said, get low or you will die every time. So I took his advice, I played for a while, I complied, but after a while I looked up and I said, you know, I don't want to just hide, I want to be in the war, I want to play. And then he said something that opened up an entire new world of gaming for me. He said, oh, no, no, you don't get low to hide, you get low in order to see. Mr. Broderick, everything looks different when you get low. Getting low is how you win, close quote. I want you to look at those excellent statements, and I trust that you realize those words are true in the real world. Those are vitally important for what you and I do every day in the battles of life. God speaks to us through the Apostle Peter, and he adopts a role rather like that teenage boy did in my life. Look at what Peter says. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6. Let's read it all together. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Peter steps into your living room and he says, in effect, get low. Everything looks different when you get low. Getting low is how you win. Peter is concerned with the continual battles that you and I face in this life. And he says we need to get a new, lower perspective if we're going to win. What we're going to learn from Peter today is not easy. This, in fact, is very counterintuitive. It's not what you and I are naturally used to. But we've got to listen to this great game of life master, and we've got to learn about getting low. Open your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5 is near the end of your Bible. You'll find the book of 1 Peter chapter 5. Uh, let's read verse 5. In the same way, I'll explain that in a moment. In the same way, you who are younger be subject to the elders. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because, quote here from Proverbs 3, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humbly, we enjoy God's grace. That's the point in verse 5. By the way, if you're like me, I learn a lot better when I take notes and write down all the things that I'm thinking about that are so much better than the dummy who's, who's teaching. And, um, and so if you were like that, open your bulletin up. You'll see on the left-hand side, if you're online, we are thrilled to be with you. We're so glad to be with you today. Um, you should have a link where you can get to your notes, and you'll see humbly we enjoy God's grace. Now, in the same way, refers to the instructions to elders that Peter gave in the paragraph just before this. So up in verse 3, he said, elders, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock, okay? Just as the elders of a church are, are to be humbly operating under the Lord, so each of us must live in the same way, clothing ourselves with humility toward other people. As Proverbs 3 declares, look at your text, there is a prerequisite. Humility is a prerequisite for God's sanctifying daily grace. In fact, if you and I don't act humbly, we will find God resisting our attempts to succeed on our own power. I love dogs. <clears throat> I think dogs give an excellent illustration of this. Suppose you've got two dogs, okay? You've got a pup named Fluffy, and you've got a pup named Fido. 
<clears throat> Fido is very gracious, right? <clears throat> Fido is a very humble dog. He sits and waits patiently. No, no, Fluffy, you can have your treat first, right? So Fido watches while you have a treat to Fluffy that is probably far more than you should be spending on a dog, and Fluffy eats her treat, right? Then it's time for Fido's treat, but Fluffy's not like Fido. Fluffy eats her own treat and then tries to steal his. Ha! Sucker! They're all mine, right? Any of you known a dog like Fluffy? Raise your hand. Okay. All right. Any of you like Fluffy? All right. The, the, the point being, if they remain like this, one dog patiently honoring the other dog, the other dog trying to grab all the treats because, <clears throat> because she sees that she's entitled to them or more important or whatever, if you've got these two dogs that stay like this, let me just ask you this. To which dog are you more likely to give extra goodies? Which one? Fluffy or Fido? Fido all the way. If you're a believer in Jesus, listen, you have experienced God's grace. You are placed in the resurrected Christ, and you are going to spend eternity with the triune God. But you may miss out on a number of the goodies of grace between now and then. In fact, if you are anything but humble toward others, you can find God resisting you. For your own development, for your own good, he can withhold daily grace so that you will learn. Eugene Peterson addressed this really nicely in his very loose translation of Proverbs chapter 2. Look what he says. Um, he says, if you've gotten anything at all out of following Christ, if his love has made any difference in your life, if being in a community of the Spirit means anything to you, if you have a heart, if you care, then do me a favor. Agree with each other. Love each other. Be deep-spirited friends. Don't push your way to the front. Don't sweet-talk your way to the top. Put yourself aside and help others get ahead. Don't be obsessed with getting your own advantage. Forget yourselves long enough to lend a helping hand. All God's people said, getting low, humility, that's how one wins. It continues in verse 6. Look at verse 6. Humble yourselves. Let's read it again. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may exalt you at the proper time. Humbly, we trust God's timing for our exaltation. The meek really do inherit the earth. God's hand is over everything. He is the one in charge of all. And those who recognize that have a particular blessing. They get to happily wait for the exaltation that will undoubtedly come. God has a set plan. He has a decided outcome of events, and that outcome includes the exaltation of His people. Nothing will stop that from coming. However, the person who humbly trusts Him along the way has a much more enjoyable journey. When your kids are little, most of them have real difficulty with time, right? Toddlers really struggle with time. Mama, when Daddy come home? Uh, 45 minutes. Uh, how long is 45 minutes to a toddler? Yeah, about six weeks, right? It's, 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 it, 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 it's, it's nothing. It's like, it's like counting in most world cultures. One, two, three, four, five, many. You know, it's just, it's just beyond comprehension. So the toddler has no idea. But the wise toddler, and I've known some sweet kids like this, says, okay, 45 minutes. I don't know how long that is. Okay. And she just waits because she knows daddy is coming home. And when daddy gets home, he is going to pick her up. He is going to exalt her, and he is going to hold her, and that is worth waiting for, right? Friends, that's us. We are in that kind of situation. We don't know when Jesus is going to return. We don't know when our exaltation will come. If we humbly trust God's timing, we can experience his peace. We need this peace. At least my mail says we do. 
the, the mail I get shows me that you and I really struggle to trust God's timing. Please, relax. Get low. Trust the Father who is going to lift you up. And by the way, that's what Advent is all about. At Advent, we don't just celebrate the incarnation, the first coming of Jesus. We celebrate the fact that He is coming back to exalt us with Him. We get to participate in His glory. And, and today, we, we lit the fourth candle, the candle of exaltation, to celebrate that. Now, read verse 7. Verse 7, casting all your cares on Him, so that He may exalt you at the proper time. Casting all your cares on Him, because He cares about you. Humbly, we recognize His care, and we cast our worries on Him. Peter says, throw all your cares, all your distractions on the Lord. He uses epiripto. This is a rare Greek verb. What we translate casting is epiripto. It appears in only one other place in all of the Bible. Luke uses it in the very memorable scene where Jesus is preparing for the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, and the disciples take their outer tunics off, and they throw them on the donkey's back to be the saddle for Jesus. Isn't that amazing? Epiripto, it's, it's taking something that is fitted on you off and throwing it down. Peter's being really creative here. He's saying that our cares cling to us like tight tunics. Isn't that the truth? You know it is. You, you and I have worries and distractions and fears that wrap around us so tightly sometimes we can't breathe. And Peter grabs a scene that was burned in his memory, the triumphal entry of Lord Jesus, and he says we should take those worries and throw them off and let Jesus use them for a saddle. Let him ride roughshod over those cares. Let him hold them down. Amen? Now, why does this work? How is it that we're able to take our tight-fitting worries off and throw them to the Lord so he can literally sit on them? Because he cares for us. Look, Look at the because, or depending on your translation, for in verse 7. That's the Greek word hati. Uh, a hati clause, when, when used this way, is causative in that language. Peter likes these. He uses them throughout his letters. Um, a hati clause is one thing causes another. So, according to Peter, what is it that makes you and, and me able to, to throw our worry cloaks onto the Lord? What makes us able to cast away our besetting concerns? Hati. Because of His care, He loves us, and that causes us to let go. Take a look at Matt West's song, More. Uh, in, in this poem, the authors speak from the voice of Jesus, and this sounds a lot like a Petrine Hottie clause. Uh, look what Matthew West and his buddies wrote. Take a look at the mountains of Jesus speaking. Take a look at the mountains stretching a mile high. Take a look at the ocean as far as your eye can see, and think of me. Do you Take a look at the desert. Do you feel like a grain of sand. I'm with you wherever. Where you go is where I am. I love you more than the sun and the stars that I taught how to shine. You're mine, and you shine for me too. I love you yesterday and today and tomorrow. I'll say it again and again. I love you more. Just, just a face in the city, just a tear on a crowded street, but you're one in a million. And Jesus says to the Christian, you belong to me. And I want you to know that I'm not letting go even when you come undone. I love you more than the sun and the stars that I taught how to shine. You're mine, and you shine for me too. I love you yesterday and today and tomorrow. I'll say it again and again. I love you more. Peter is describing a God who cares for you like that. He, he is ready, he is willing, he is able to take the cloak of your worries if you'll just cast it on him. Why? 
because he loves you more than anyone can ever possibly describe. Amen? Therefore, I, uh, here, here's, what I, here's what I'd like to do. Um, we're going we're gonna to take a moment of care casting. And I actually invite you, if you wish, uh, if you're able and you wish, I invite you to kneel with me. I find, personally, I have learned that when I'm casting cares, there's something very important about kneeling. Physically, it helps me spiritually get low. Um, so if you, if you wish and you're able, why don't you kneel? You can sit, you can stand at home. I would encourage you to kneel as well. You can dance, whatever you wish to do, but we're going to pray for a minute. Let's, let's take a moment and let's, uh, let's cast our cares on the Lord. God, we, um, we come to you needing to get low, to be humble. I pray you will stir in us the truth of, of exaltation, the candle we lit today. That for those of us who trust Jesus, we are in you. And we are guaranteed exaltation. Father, it's just the waiting time that's hard for us. And you know that. So we, we take all the things that make this difficult, um, our worries. Friend, whatever it is that you are carrying around, a besetting sin, a concern about the economy, a, a, a thorny, tangled-up relationship, Fear about world governments. These are all legitimate. They're all real. But they don't belong on you. Those are Jesus' saddle. Cast them off right now. Set them aside. You're, they're not meant for you to carry. Cast your cares on him. Because he cares for you. Amen. Thank you so much. You may be seated. Thank you. Peter started by telling us what's best for uh, leaders is humility. And, and that's what's best for us all. And humbly, what do we do? We enjoy God's grace. We depend on His timing. We cast our cares on Him. And next, we resist the adversary by trusting Jesus. Verse 8. Go to verse 8. Be sober-minded. Be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour. Resist him firm in the faith. Stop there. Resist the devil? How, how can we possibly stand against a creature who has the power of an archangel? The answer is there in verse 9, firm in the faith. We've got to be alert for opportunities to trust Jesus. He's the one who can defeat this seemingly overwhelming force of our adversary. The key to victory is not anything about us. It is firmly trusting Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean we stick our head in the sand. 
We are called to notice the spiritual battles that are all around us, the, the fears, the stressors, the temptations, and take each one of them to Jesus. He can take those things and defeat the devil every time. That's why the right side of your notes has the headline, We Humbly Resist the Adversary by Trusting Jesus. Early in 2021, the world of competitive chess was really shaken by the news that the Russian uh, Ian Niponyachichi, uh, who goes by Nipo, he and his team were given access to this supercomputer. It's called Zores. It's actually a supercomputer cluster at the uh, Skolkovo Institute of Science and Technology. Now, why was that such a big deal? Susan Ninon of ESPN, she's their chess writer. Yes, ESPN has a chess writer. Uh, she explains why this is such a big deal. She said this, players use computers and open source AI engines to analyze chess openings, to, to bolster their preparation, to scour for new ideas, to go down lines that the opponent has unlikely to have explored. Joris, that's the supercomputer, was specifically designed to solve problems in machine learning and database modeling with a capacity of one petaflop per second. A petaflop, folks, is a quadrillion, that's 1,000 trillions of floating point operations per second. Exactly what you get at your office, right? I mean, that's just absolutely amazing. So using that computer to prepare, Nipo beat everyone in the world to gain challenger status for the, for the world title. Uh, his competition in the world championships, which were held in Dubai in early December 2021, was the reigning champion, Magnus Carlsen. This is Carlsen. This is Nipo. Carlsen is considered by many people to be the greatest chess player who has ever lived. But against Nipo and his Horus computer, a lot of people expected Carlson to lose. They shouldn't have worried. Mr. Carlson won the longest match in 130 years of classical chess world championships. There were 135 moves in that match. It lasted 7 hours, 45 minutes, and he won game 6, and after that the Russian fell apart. He, he absolutely had nothing, and Magnus Carlson cruised to another world title. What Magnus Carlsen is to chess, Jesus is to life. It doesn't matter what's against him, not even a supercomputer or the devil, which are often the same thing, right? It doesn't matter. You can win. You will win by firmly trusting Jesus. Amen? Verse 9 goes on to describe how humbly we remember that ours isn't the only story. Resist him, firm in the faith, knowing the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your fellow believers throughout the world. We've talked before about how pain and suffering can isolate people. When I, um, when I hobbled into my orthopedist's office before my latest knee surgery, I was thinking only about myself. I was thinking about the torn cartilage in my knee and how very much the pain hurt of little bone spurs and things like that. And then I went in and I hobbled in and I sat down and I looked around this waiting room and there were 60-something people in there in wheelchairs and walkers and neck braces and full-body casts. And suddenly my hobbling didn't seem so terrible anymore. God loves us too much for us to become full of self-pity. Know this, you're not the only one. Why is this so important? Our suffering is real, and God cares about our pain. But He cares about us so much that He won't let us become self-pitying in our pain because self-pity separates us from God's grace. You see, self-pity assumes that God is not in charge that there's no place for final exaltation. Self-pity is prideful, and thus it breaks our bridge to peace. 
Just as I was rocked into a better perspective in that waiting room, look what Peter does. He, that word, knowing, that is, God will, God will rock you, right? That's what he's doing here. He is saying, somebody better put you back into your place. It, you are not to give in. And verse 9 is saying, you are not to give in to self-pity. Now, this conviction is not a downer. God is shocking us out of our self-pity with that, with that word knowing. But this is no downer. God wants us to remain positive. The sufferings of our brethren who are persecuted all around the world are not supposed to make us sad or defeated. No, no, no. Look what they're doing. They're fulfilling God's important purposes. Look at the verb. Are being experienced. Do you see that? In the original text, that's placed at the very end of the sentence, which is a, which is a place of emphasis, right? Epiteleo. Is, is the word we translate are being experienced. Epiteleo is a Greek compound that means to, to fulfill, to, to execute, to carry something out completely and perfectly. So humbly we know that there are other many, many millions of other very important Christian life stories that are being played out all around the world. And we know that all of them have overwhelmingly happy endings. The Christian knows that God is at work in millions of believers' lives, and we know persecution is only temporary. That's what epiteleo means. It, it always leads to a completely perfect ending, and it will. Amen? Humbly, we also embrace the work of God in our lives. Go to verse 10. The God of all grace who called you to His eternal glory in Christ will Himself restore, establish, strengthen, and support you after you've suffered a little while. Yes, we suffer this side of heaven. It's a biblical fact. Sometimes that suffering will be directly and unfairly aimed at you just because you're a believer in Jesus. And while not minimizing that pain, Peter declares that the reward far outshines any hurt. And and by the way, there seems to be both a present and a future aspect to this blessing. In, in theological terms, this is both the now and the not yet. You and I and all Christians are going to be rewarded by the work of God in our lives. We're promised. We are called to God's eternal glory in Messiah Jesus. And even this side of heaven, God is at work. He's shaping our souls. He is using everything for the development program that He has for our lives. Look, look at what He does. Look at the words. He restores, establishes, strengthens, and supports us. Those are all powerful words. But here's what's really, really cool, okay? All those words are using Greek literature about fishing, Anybody remember what Peter's first career was? What was his first career? He, was, he owned a fishing company. He, he owned a boat, right? And, and employees and the whole thing. P Peter's first career is brought beautifully to work here. You see, Peter owned a fishing company. These are words used in fishing. In fact, this is really cool. Peter, between his first career and when he's writing this letter, he discipled a young man named Mark. And, and Mark became very close to him. In fact, later you're going to see he calls him his son, spiritual son. Mark wrote a gospel. And in that gospel, Mark describes the scene where James and John are mending their nets. Okay? And Jesus comes up to them. You, you may have run into that scene in the gospel of Mark. And the word he uses, it's kind of funny because it's not the word you would expect. The word he uses right there of James and John mending the nets is this word, the Greek word we translate restore here. And by the way, these other three words, establish, strengthen, support, they all appear in Greek literature outside the Bible for fishing and fishing net restoration. So what's Peter saying? He's saying that humbly we take all the pains of our lives and we recognize that God is using them to mend our hearts so that we can serve better as fishers of men. If anyone could be excused for despairing 
developing bitterness because of persecution, I think it would be this guy right here, Pastor James Augie. Um, in the 1850s, Augie opposed slavery. He opposed succession on biblical grounds. So when the war broke out, his neighbors in Mississippi, and he loved his home state of Mississippi, you know what they did with him? They threw him in jail. He was tried for treason against the state. He was found guilty, he was beaten, and he was sentenced to be hanged. Thankfully, uh, miraculously, through the work of a number of people, he was sprung out of prison and he was spirited north on the Underground Railroad and he escaped to the north. Here's the most fascinating part of Augie's story, though. He forgave his captors. He, he let God restore and establish and strengthen and support him. You know what he did? He prayed every day for his home state. And he continued to preach throughout the north. He, he preached the gospel of God's grace. And then when he went back south after the war, he preached the gospel of God's grace and became very beloved in his home state. He wrote a wonderful book about it called Tupelo. I recommend it highly. I want you to look at his comment on the verse we just read. Pastor Augie made in his commentary on 1 Peter, he, he said this about chapter 5, verse 10. I think this is very, very helpful because think about it. You and I live once again in a divided country where, where Christians are persecuted for not agreeing with the party lines. Look what Augie said. Christ is the good physician. There is no disease he cannot heal, no sin he cannot remove, no trouble he cannot help. He is the balm of Gilead, the great physician who has never yet failed to heal all the spiritual maladies of every soul that has come unto him in faith and prayer. Amen. The key is to come unto him, to get low, to be humble. Humbly, we enjoy God's grace. We depend on his timing. We cast our cares on him. We resist the adversary by trusting Jesus. We know that ours is not the only story. We, we embrace the work of God in our lives and humbly we glorify him. Verse 11, to him be dominion forever. Amen. Now earlier I mentioned the world chess champion, the Norwegian Magnus Carlsen. He won his first title in 2013 and has held it ever since. In 2013, the championships were held in Chennai, India, where he beat the reigning world champion, an Indian, Viswanathan Anand. Uh, Carlson was 19 years old, the youngest champion ever by a pretty good margin, even younger than Bobby Fischer, the American. And, and the Hyatt Regency Hotel in Chennai is where a beautiful, huge hotel, that's where this, uh, this uh, contest was held. And as he was, it became clear that he was going to defeat the world champ, the, the Hyatt Regency went wild. Uh, after it was over, Carlson, this 19-year-old, was so full of joy, he was just so fired up, he went and jumped fully clothed into the pool at the Hyatt Regency and was just having a great time, just celebrating. Now, Anand, the fellow he meet, is a, is a really, seems to be a wonderful human being, an excellent player, and he has inspired millions of people in India to take up chess, which is great. Because of his revered status in India, a lot of the Indian newspapers, like the Times of India and some of the others, published these really scathing rebukes of Magnus Carlsen. And, and this was the basic idea. All of them said, he's not humble. He's just not humble. He's out there just celebrating. He's not being humble at all. And that's the tone they said it in, I'm sure. The best response I read came from First Post, which is an Indian newspaper, and, and a guy named Ramesh Indian said this, an inability to appreciate Carlson's win will prevent us from enjoying chess and sports. Better let go of your ego 
and come with a non-judgmental heart to enjoy the game. Stand up and applaud Carlson's win instead of withdrawing into a corner, whining hypocritically, and grudging Carlson his well-earned crystal-clear dominance over Anand. Close quote. Of course, that brings up the huge question I know that you're asking right now in your uh, Magnus Carlson imitation. Pastor Wayne, what does that have to do with church and Bible study? It's a great question. Thank you for asking, Magnus. Here's the deal. Jesus is the GOAT, all right? He is the one and only. He is the greatest champion of all time. He is worthy of celebration. He is worthy of praise. I want you to look back at how Peter has referred to Jesus in this letter. Join me, if you would, on the underlined portions. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 1. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory. Gave him glory! Jumping fully clothed into the pool! So that your faith and hope are in God. Chapter 3, verse 15. But in your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy, ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Jesus Christ has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God. Come on, kids, keep up. At the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers subject to him. Chapter 5, verse 11. To him be dominion forever. Amen. Jesus is the greatest person ever. He is the God-man who sacrificed himself in a king's gambit just to win eternal victory for all of those who trust him. The right response to him is to glory in that, to celebrate his victory. But there are critics. There are always critics. But there are increasing numbers of critics who claim these days that it is silly to rejoice over Jesus or to celebrate him. I recently had an atheist tell me, having a good conversation with this atheist, and he said, you know, I think Jesus is just prideful when he allows people to glorify him. And I said, I think that tells me a lot more about you than about Jesus. You see, the problem is he sees glory as something being demanded, whereas the reality, biblically, is we're being invited into the greatest thing in the universe. Okay, so Hannah Banana, you have a huge box of uh, Girardelli peppermint bark, okay? Or Williams-Sonoma, whichever kind you like. I know you're a connoisseur, all right? Are you going to share it with all this hoi polloi here? No way. You're not going to cast those pearls before this swine, right? Good heavens, you can go get their own peppermint bark. That's, your... That's not God's attitude. That's the attitude my friend had. That's why he's whining and carping and sitting back and, and saying, Jesus, it's just selfish. He just not. I'm... Do you realize that this is better? I know this is hard to understand. God's glory is greater than peppermint bark. It's, it's astonishing. This is the greatest thing in the universe now and forever and we're invited to jump into the pool fully clothed and join in it. Isn't that amazing? This is the greatest thing ever, and God allows us in it. Here, think of it like this. Remember that quote I read you from the, from the first post of India? Take that quote from Ramesh, and let's substitute the king of kings for the king of chess. Now read it. An inability to appreciate Jesus will prevent us from enjoying life. Better let go of your ego. And come with a non-judgmental heart to enjoy him. Stand up and applaud Christ's victory instead of withdrawing to a corner, whining hypocritically, and judging Jesus, his well-earned, crystal-clear dominance over all. This is how you win in life. You get low so you can better see and enjoy and glorify Jesus. In fact, that's the big idea that has the final place, the final place of emphasis in our church mission statement. Our church mission statement. We haven't done it in a long time. Stand up, everybody. Stand up. 
Real quickly, stand up. Let's say the mission of Frisco Bible together. You'll see at the very end, the place of emphasis is the glory of God. What is Frisco Bible all about? Let's say it together. We are redeemed community doing the great commission by the power of the Holy Spirit for the glory of God. All God's people said? All right, you may be seated. Let's finish our letter. Through Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I consider him, I have written to you briefly in order to encourage you and to testify that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, as does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love, peace to all of you who are in Christ Jesus. Now, interestingly, Peter closes this letter in a very formal Greek style. Um, Here's what was customary, especially in the, in the people who wrote in Greek in the Roman Empire. It was very customary in the formal style to, to quote or to talk about your secretary. That's how you ended the letter. So, so he introduces his secretary in verse 12. He uses the Romanized form of the name Silas. Uh, this Silvanus that you see there is the same guy that's called Silas in your Bible. He's the one that went on missionary trips with the Apostle Paul, a remarkable man, a very, very gifted fellow, uh, helped Paul and Peter write. Um, he had a Latinized form of his name, Silvanus. There were a number of these guys in the New Testament. Mark was like this. His Hebrew name was actually John. His, his uh, Latin name was Marcus. Um, the Apostle Paul was like this. Saul was his name. Then it was Paul, which is the Latinized form. And, uh, and Silas is Silvanus. These are, these are wealthy people who are Roman citizens. And, uh, and in this case, Silvanus is taking dictation. Now, it's very likely that he wasn't just taking dictation. He's, th- this was regular practice in the day, that he is actually cleaning up the Greek as he goes along with Peter. And, and when the process is complete, he and Peter would go through it together kind of as editors. All right, now look, I said this is the formal Greek style, but I really hate how misleading this is. That makes it sound like something very stiff, right? This is hard for us to catch across the centuries, but I want you to understand, this kind of formal closing, yes, it's formal, but it's very affectionate. When he introduces his staff, this is very affectionate. Peter's referring to his team a lot the way that modern athletes do. For example, I mentioned the champion of the world of chess, Magnus Carlsen. Just before the match in 2001, he introduced his team. Here we are in Dubai, where some of you have spent time just recently. That's Magnus. First of all, we have Peter. He's both the leader of the team, and he's also the adult in the room. Sometimes, at least. He's also probably the only smart guy here. (laughs) Then we have perhaps our most important member, which is Fres. He's been uh, here ever since the first one in 2013. I mean, I wanted somebody French in the team. (laughs) And uh, Vachier Lagrave, Bacro was not available. So it was this guy and uh, now I feel that he's kind of the glue in the group. Everybody loves. Everybody laughs with him. They laugh at him. He's done a great job for, uh, for many years. <laughs> <laughs> he goes on to introduce the other three men on his team, but you get the idea. That is similar to what Peter's doing when he introduces Silas. This is really affectionate. Now, next, according to the formal style, his purpose is supposed to be restated, and he does so very simply. He says, stand in grace. This is the big idea of the book. Let's all read it together. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 12. I have written to you briefly in order to encourage you 
and to testify that this is the true grace of God, stand firm in it. Peter expects Christians to see the truth of God's grace and stand strong in it. He doesn't want people stumbling around in legalism or licentiousness. He expects, he commands us to stand firm in grace. That is a theme that permeates every part of this letter, just as it permeated Peter's own transformed life. For example, consider the very start of the book. All right, in, in light of his avowed dedication to grace at the end, listen to how he started. Uh, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those chosen, living as exiles, dispersed abroad in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. These are all provinces in what we today call Turkey. Chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Do you see what God desires for us through Peter's pen? The opening, the closing, everything in between are all about grace. Grace and peace are ours in fullest measure. That's what it's all about, Charlie Brown. Obey Jesus by accepting his provision in his blood. Stand in his grace. Amen? Classical style always ended with greetings. Uh, in this case, love and peace greetings are sent and expected. Verse 13. She who, is, uh, she who is in Babylon chosen together with you sends you greetings, as does Mark, my son. I told you we'd talk about him. Greet one another with a kiss of love, peace to all of you who are in Christ. I hate to end a study this way, but I have to be honest. No, I don't know what he means by Babylon. I don't know where Peter is when he writes this. It doesn't seem likely at all that it's the physical city of Babylon. So he may be using that name as a code for Rome. Uh, that is something that was done about 100 years later. We don't know if it was done this early. Neither do I know exactly what he means by the lady. It probably refers to a church. Ecclesia, the Greek word we translate church, is feminine uh, in that language. By the way, the Apostle John did this a number of times. He would refer to a church by the title the lady. He would refer to that as a, as a feminine object. So, so Peter may mean a church, not a person, but I don't know. Which, of course, brings up the question that you're asking in your internal teenage gamer voice. Mr. Broderick, you don't know much, do you? Good point. But... I think I do know what a holy kiss was, and it was neither unforeseen nor sloppy. Um, <laughs> holy kiss was a greeting. Remember the provinces to whom this letter was first directed, okay? We, I don't know if you can see the outline here, but these provinces here is where Peter first wrote the letter, the ones we read about. And in those provinces then, people greeted each other, men in particular greeted each other with a, uh, a two-part sideways kiss. It is still done in that part of the world to this day. And yet, look at, look at your text. This isn't supposed to be a mere formality, right? These greetings are to be loving and, and by inference, holy. These are people made holy in Christ, and they're to be treated as such. Christians are supposed to do... What he's saying is you're supposed to be more than say, how are you? Fine. How are you? How are you? Fine. How are you? Fine. No. We're supposed to lavish love and peace on each other. Is that what you do? Is, is that what we're known for, for being people who bestow love and peace? Let's pray about that. Let's pray. Father, I pray for myself. I pray for my brothers and sisters that we will be, we'll be real greeters of love, that we will appropriately with every different kind of person and all the different nationalities and ages that come in here and into our lives, that we will be people who bestow love and peace on our brethren. And we ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen.